Jesus Christ does say when he's on the cross, this is the very first thing. He says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, you know, I want to focus our attention to this simple phrase that Jesus Christ says, the simple prayer that Jesus Christ has to the Father. And the very first thing that I see is just the love of God, the perfect love of God, that despite these circumstances and despite the betrayal, the beating, the crucifixion, that his heart is still set on forgiveness of his enemies. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, can you pay attention to the fact that while he was crucified in front of his enemies, the very people that put him on the cross, his first thought and his first prayer were that they would be forgiven. This is the God to whom vengeance belongeth. Not crying down for, for, for fire to come down from heaven. Not praying, God, I can't wait till the day I come back and we finish this thing up. No, 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 no. He's crucified and he's looking at his enemies and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, today be a good day to get saved. Don't think that you've committed too many sins. Don't think that you've walked too far away, that you're beyond salvation. He saves to the uttermost. His hand is not shortened. And the perfect example I see of that is in the very moment, at his lowest point, Jesus Christ desired the forgiveness of his enemies. He desires your forgiveness this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you're saved this morning, we preach this to the men at the mission all the time, if you're saved this morning, don't get deceived by the lie that says, you've prayed that prayer too many times. You can't get up that one more time. You've fallen so many times in that same sin that just keeps besetting you, that same desire you have that you keep falling, you keep failing. God doesn't want to hear your prayer anymore. He's going to move on to somebody else, right? Anybody felt that thought or heard that thought? That's the deceit of the enemy. The Bible says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross looking at his enemies, desired their forgiveness. How much more does he desire the reconciliation of his children? If you're saved this morning, you're a child of God, God wants you to be closer to him. Jesus Christ wants that relationship with him. And so you and I have a choice then. And so I'm thankful for all of those things. I'm thankful for the love of God. I'm thankful for his forgiveness for the saved and for the lost. And I can't help but also be overwhelmed by the boldness of Jesus Christ on this cross. Because if you think at the position that he's in, from any objective measure, anybody looking at that cross looks like somebody who has failed. Looks like somebody who said he was going to do all these things, and now here he is, an abject failure. And that's what they're mocking him. They're deriding him. They're saying, hey, if you're really the son of God, save yourself. Get yourself off the cross if you can really do it. And yet for him to go through what he's going and to hear the ridicule, to bear that shame and, you know, not his shame, but to bear my shame and to bear my sin and to despise all of that and just to keep going, that takes some commitment. That takes some faith. That takes some boldness. And, you know, a few weeks ago we were at the men's meeting, we were talking about boldness and how it's a good thing to desire boldness. And when I see Jesus Christ in this state, I can't help but think, you know what? We see where the world is headed and we see where things are going. And maybe even in your own life now, but definitely someday soon, you know, Jesus Christ said that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, 
so also say they persecute you. And so then I have to say, if I'm ever brought into this position where I got to make a decision, where I'm going to be in that low point, am I going to have that same boldness? Am I going to be able to take that same stand? And you're in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to turn over there. And before that, I'm going to stop here because as much as I appreciate and I want to focus our attention on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what that means for us and just the gratitude that we should have, it also has to challenge us if you're saved here this morning. Because the Bible says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, in God's perspective, if you're saved, you've been put in Christ. You've been crucified with him on that cross. You've been buried with him. You're supposed to walk in newness of life. And as Christians, you know, if you're saved, call yourself a Christian. That means that you've got to have a purpose in your life to be Christ-like. And so if I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you want to be Christ-like, just look to see what Christ was like. And I look at his attitude in that moment, and I'm supposed to believe that Jesus Christ lives inside me, and I'm supposed to have a desire for him to work things out in my life, then I should be able to have that same testimony when I get to that evil day in my own life, to have that same boldness that Jesus Christ did. And the challenge and the sobering part, as you're looking in 1 John chapter 4, is that there's no excuse not to. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, talking about having boldness in this life in those moments. We'll look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. The Bible says, actually, start in verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in God dwelleth in love, dwelleth in God, in God in him. And here's verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. You know what John, the Bible's saying right here is that talk about the love of Jesus Christ, look at the love, focus your attention, dwell in it and abide in it, but it's got to affect you. Because it says that if you are as he is in this world, you can not only have boldness in those moments when your faith is tested, but you can have boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. If I draw close to Jesus Christ and I get better acquainted with his love and I abide in him and I have him working through me, I can have boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we know that Paul says, you know, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm not saying this is a light thing to take into account. That it's a light thing to say, I'm going to have boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm certainly not saying you're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ and say, God, give me what you owed me because I live the way you said down here. No, no, no. The boldness that Jesus Christ had on that cross, that boldness just to be so persuaded in what God had said and to take it to the end. If we do that, we can have boldness at the judgment seat when we're standing before him, when we're standing before him. Because as we'll have the testimony that as he is, so are we in this world. Now, I'm not there this morning. I'm not going to stand here and say that I'm there this morning. But if I read these verses and I actually believe them, then I desire to be there. And how do I get there? And so going back to Luke chapter 23, I just want to look at, again, his statement there on the cross and two things we can take from that so that we can have that boldness. Because there's really only, there's two things 
There's two things. If we do these two things, we can have boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. And again, I preface all this by saying, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but we don't have to make it more complicated than it actually is. First, Luke chapter 23. Go back to Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Let's read it again. This is what Jesus says. It says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's two parts to what Jesus says. The first part here, and we're just going to go in the order that Jesus says it. Father, forgive them. If you want to be able to take a stand down here, and you want to have boldness down here, you want to have that faith down here, you've got to get your eyes and your mind off of yourself. Amen. And you've got to get it on other people. Amen. Jesus Christ at this low moment was not focused in self-pity on his situation. He was not thinking about, oh man, I wish what I could do to these people. He was pleading to the Father for mercy for his enemies. And you and I, if we're just focused on ourselves, we're just in this thing for ourselves, we are not going to get very far. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we say this to the, to the guys at the mission also that, you know, when you get saved and, for, you know, these guys, they're overcoming addictions in their lives. You know, they've got no stability. They've got no control over their relationships, their finances, anything, right? And so you can't give anything to somebody that you don't already have for yourself. So, yes, the very first thing is you need to get into the word of God when you're saved. And you need to develop that relationship with the Lord. But we tell these guys that the end goal is not for you to have some personal Stability. That's not the end goal, right? And that's so contrary to what the world preaches, right? The world just preaches self-love. And if there's anything in your life that's not serving you, just get it out because it's all about you and it's all about making you into really your own image, right? We're not trying to be conformed into our own image and our own desire, what we think we should have or should not have. We need to be focusing our attention on the fact that if Jesus Christ is working things out of my own life and I start to get that stability and I start to get that growth and I start to get more persuaded in the things that God has shown me, well, now I can go and I'm equipped to reach out to a dying world to help draw some people in to Jesus Christ. Now I can look at the people around me and say, maybe I can help some other Christians grow in confidence in Jesus Christ. Turn to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll see that this was Paul's prayer as well. Uh, yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the Bible says to lay up for ourselves treasure, treasures in heaven, right? That's a good thing to desire those treasure, treasures in heaven rather than material wealth down here on earth. But we're not working for the treasures for the sake of that that, that treasure that's in heaven, right? The Bible says we're going to throw those crowns at his feet, right? We're not working for those things. I'm not saying, oh God, you know, I'll sacrifice the big house down here because I'm going to have the mansion up there. That's not the hard attitude. Those treasures that we're going to have in heaven, are, they're just going to represent the fact that I actually was able to bring glory to God. Because when I stand before him and he's weighing those works and some of them are getting burned and praying that some of those things are actually stay, it's all about whether I brought glory to him. Did you bring glory to him? Because when you see him and when I see him, I'm going to say, God, I wish I just brought you some more glory. Because you're going to realize just how worthy he actually is. I mean, that's what they're, they're, they're shouting and singing in heaven. Worthy is the lamb. That's what we're going to be realizing. And so let's get started down here. But it's got to be about others. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 19. This is Paul says, he says, For what is our hope? 
or joy or crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory in, and joy. Listen, if it's all about me and it's all about me wanting to do all these things for myself and for my own personal benefit, for my own personal glory, you know the problem with that is that there's gonna come a day where I'm not gonna want it. There's gonna come a day where you're not gonna want it that bad. There's gonna come a day where you're gonna say, ah, you know, if it's just for me, I'm good. But man, if you're thinking about other people, and first and foremost, if you're doing it for his glory, and then you realize, man, if I walk away, or if I slip, or if I throw in the towel, or if I compromise here, look at all the people in my life that are gonna suffer, that are looking at me. The people that I told, and I tried to strengthen, I tried to encourage, and they're looking at me and said, well, he threw in the towel, why should I keep going? Right? You see elders in this, uh, in this body. I have, you know, uh, people that I've looked up to, you know, in my life growing up, you know, and if they walk away and they throw in the towel, that's going to discourage me, right? And being part of this body, it's a privilege and it's also a responsibility. And so we got to be conscious of that and not just be doing it for ourselves, but for his glory and for those around us. I want my kids to have stronger faith I want my kids to have stronger faith than I have. I want them to be able to stand in places I wasn't able to. And so as I read these verses and I, I think about... I think about Jesus Christ and what he's given me. I have a responsibility to get my eyes off of myself and on my family. If it becomes more than that, we're, we're doing it wrong. And we're back in Luke chapter 23, and we got one more thing. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23. And we got the second part of this, this prayer that he asked to the Father, and he's praying. He's praying to him. We've got to be praying for others. In verse, 20, uh, verse 34, the second half of that verse, you'll never pray that prayer. You'll never have that desire until you get the second part of the verse, which is that he said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. The second part you need to get down is you need to be fully persuaded in God's perspective and in his promises. If you are walking in anything else, you're not even going to have that desire. You are not going to make it very far. What do I mean by that? Your faith and your confidence cannot be in what a preacher has said. It can't be in a certain creed. It can't be in this feeling that you had that one time when you prayed that prayer. And you, it can't be in any of those things. It has to be grounded in the word of God. Jesus Christ spent hours in prayer in that garden of Gethsemane and he committed that he was going to do God's perfect will. Jesus Christ, when he's talking to these people in the beginning of verse 27 down, 
He's telling them, don't feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for you and your children. Why? Because there's that prophecy there that there's going to come a time in Jacob's trouble where there's going to be no more Savior to forgive them. They're going to have to endure some things to the end. And they're going to be crying out for the mountains to fall on them. There's going to be some bad times coming. And so Jesus Christ, knowing that, says, hey, what I'm going through right now isn't that bad. What you guys need to do is you need to get reconciled to God now because there's a judgment that's coming. And you and I, we're going to be in a position like Jesus Christ where we're going to be called to take a stand. And if you're going to sit there and have your faith wavering, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So you and I need to get focused and persuaded in the word of God. That's what any of those Old Testament saints, like an Abraham, he was persuaded by the promises of God, it says in Romans chapter 4. Not persuaded by some ideal, persuaded by the promises of God. And so two very simple things that you and I need to do if we're going to have the love, the faith, the boldness that Jesus Christ had. And it's just simply staying faithful to the word of God and in prayer. It's two simple things. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. And that's what we're just preaching about here this morning. Just remembering Jesus Christ, staying faithful in the word of God and in prayer. Because there's an old military adage, and there's different variations of it, but it goes... That in the face of adversity, we do not rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. And if you want to stand in that day when your faith's really tested, it's going to depend on what you and I are doing day in and day out on a practical level right now. So if I can encourage you this morning as we remember the Lord's table is to continue in the word of God, continue in prayer and thinking about others so that we can have boldness down here, but more importantly, we can have boldness in that day where we see him, which is going to be someday soon. Amen. We decided to start coming here about six or seven months ago, and um, you treated us like family, you know, from the moment that we came here. And I'm not just saying thank you, you know, to the people that we knew in Staten Island for like 15 or 20 years, because they had to like us, they had to be nice to us, because they kind of knew us already. But, <laughs> but thank you to those who we met in this work, uh, people who maybe have been saved here and just joined and whatever. Uh, you treated us like family. It's been great to get to know some of you, and uh, it's just been a, a blessing to be here. There's a lot more that I could say about that, but I don't want to waste uh, too much time with all of that, but um, just praise the Lord for that. Um, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 It says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Let's pray very quickly. Lord, I pray that you just help and lead in this time. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just speak to the hearts of people. Lord, help everybody to see their, their Savior high and lifted up this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And he talks there about the fellowship of his sufferings, being suffering along with Jesus Christ. And this morning, I also want to fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about those sufferings that Stephen briefly mentioned and talk about why he is worthy 
to do the things that he mentioned this morning, if we see the sufferings and what he did for us. So go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And many of you were saved out of a religious system that has something called the Stations of the Cross. And if you've been to fancy churches, you may see statues that go around the entire church of these 14 Stations of the Cross. And there's only one problem with them. is about half of them are unbiblical. They're either out of order or just some things just like never happened, like Veronica, I don't know who she is, but she wiped the face of Jesus. But I, it's just, I, I don't find it in here. And that's kind of the most important thing uh, when it comes to knowing biblical truth. Is it, what say it the scriptures? Is it in this book? And there's three of them that are most egregious to me, and we'll get to those in a few minutes. But the Stations of the Cross, they depict Jesus as a weak, weary, wimpy, wussy weakling. I don't know if there's any more W's that I could think of. But it depicts Jesus as a weak man who can't bear his own cross himself. He can't get to his crucifixion by himself. But I want to submit to you this morning, I want to show you a strong, suffering Savior. A strong, suffering Savior. And let's see what he starts off with here. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, Verse 15, it says, And he said unto them with desire, Have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer? For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I want you to notice, before that cross, Jesus Christ went with no food. He went with no sustenance. And, you know, before a race, an athletic event, before maybe you go to work out or something, you want some sort of calories. You want something in your body to help you through that event that you're about to go through. You might be crazy and run 135 miles, and uh, he's not in here right now. But, you know, I'm sure when Jason did that, he didn't just wake up and say, all right, let's go. All right? He had to be prepared for that. But our Savior, when he was going to go through this whole ordeal, he knew that he didn't need any fleshly strength to get through this. He needed that spiritual strength. And we'll see where that came from in Mark 14. Go to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, we see where Jesus gets that spiritual strength. So the first thing Jesus went without was he went with no sustenance before the cross. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, it says, And they came to a place, which is called Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray, verse 33. And he taketh Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little. In Matthew 26, it says he went a little bit further. He went a little further. Thank the Lord that we have a Savior that went a little bit, a little further for us. And he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he goes through his prayers and he's speaking to the Lord that this cup would be passed from him. 
and he goes back and forth three times, and he finds the disciples sleeping each time he comes back. But Jesus stayed awake through that entire time. In verse 41, it says, And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest, it is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Our Savior, not only did he go with no sustenance before that cross, he went with no sleep. Now, I don't know about you, those sound like a recipe for a really terrible day, all right? I don't know if you've ever had either, you know, just a few hours of sleep at night or just no sleep, no food. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd probably just, you know, skip work and go back to bed that day. Uh, but that's a pretty bad day. Let's look at Mark chapter 14. Let's continue. Let's see what else Jesus Christ went through. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, we're there. 61, and it says, but he held his peace. He's there being questioned by the high priest. And he answered nothing. And the high priest asked him and said unto them, unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. It's a good statement for Jesus to make. I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You could look at Daniel 7.13 and Revelation 1.7 for those cross-references. Jesus claiming there to be God. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Jesus, he was spit upon before that cross. I can't think of something that's more disrespectful, insulting, scornful to do to a person just to spit in their face. That's how low they thought of your Savior. Not only was he spit on, he was smitten. They even blindfolded him and said, tell us who's, who's hitting you right now. I mean, he could have done it. He could have told them. He could have, you know, made them wet their pants <laughs> at that moment, right? But Jesus Christ, verse, uh, Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He had no sustenance. He had no sleep. He was spit on. He was smitten. Mark 15, Mark 15, verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And that scourging, that scourging is no joke. They took a leather whip that was braided with metal balls, iron balls, and sheep bones. And they weren't just meant, they weren't just whipping him to make him bleed. They were trying to rip the skin off of him. They were ripping the skin off to the point where they were ripping muscle from him. That's what they did in those scourgings. And you want to know how far they took it? Psalm 22, verse 17 says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They did that scourging, they did that whipping on Jesus, 
and he could see his bones. Psalm 129 verse 3 says, The plowers plowed hard upon my back. They made long their furrows. You know, some men didn't even survive the scourging. When they were going to get crucified, they were scourged so bad that they were just in just complete shock, blood loss. They died right there. Jesus Christ survived it. The plowers plowed hard upon his back. In furrows sowed redemption seed. Jesus went a little bit further. Can't you hear him crying? Will you go further from me? No sustenance, no sleep. He was spit on. He was smitten. He was scourged. Look at verse 16 there in Mark 15. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited the crown of thorns and put it on his head. He had that crown of thorns. They braided that crown of thorns and set it right into his skull. It just wasn't just sitting on there. They pressed it down so that the blood ran out. No sustenance, no sleep. He was spit on, he was smitten, he was scourged. He had the crown of thorns set into his skull. Verse 19, and they smote him on the head with a reed and they spit on him, more spitting, and bowing their knees, worshiped him. They mocked him there. They took that reed. They weren't just tapping him lightly on the head. They were looking to bash his skull in with that reed. Now, when we look at those stations of the cross, I said the three most egregious, the things, ones that just make my blood boil when I see them, is Jesus falling beneath his cross. Let's see if that's actually biblical. Let's see what the Bible actually says about this. Let's look at verse 20 there. It says, When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander, and Rufus to bear his cross. And even in Matthew 27, 32, it says, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So it wasn't that they gave Jesus the cross and he just fell three times like in five feet and then they gave Simon the cross. Let's see what actually happened. Go to John 19. John chapter 19. Jesus, let's see how he bears this cross with no sustenance, no sleep, being spit on, being smitten, being scourged, had that crown of thorns set into his skull, being, having been smote with that reed. John chapter 19, verse 17, it says, And he, bearing his cross, verse 17, went in forth into a place called the skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Jesus Christ bore his cross all the way to the place that he was crucified. He did not fall beneath the cross. It was Simon who fell beneath that cross. Because no one could bear that cross except Jesus. No one can bear your sin except our Lord Jesus Christ. You could, you could try to bear your sin, but you know where it's going to end you. 
It's going to end you up. It's going to end up in hell. That's where you're going to end up if you try to bear your sin yourself. But Jesus Christ shouldered that cross for you and I. And when he got to that place where he was crucified, verse 18, they crucified him. Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. They set those spikes into his hands and he was up there on that cross. And Psalm 22, verse 14 says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross beneath the weight of his own body. His bones falling down. His heart, says, melted like wax, come falling down within him. And if you read what historians and physicians say about this, is that he was dying and suffocating under the weight of his own body. And they'll tell you that he was there faintly whispering, I thirst, and just faint. He couldn't make it any further. But let's see. I told you we have a strong suffering Savior. Go to Mark 15. Let's see how our Savior really died on that cross. You'll read a lot of things because, yes, a lot of people died like that. A lot of people had these convulsions they talked about where they're trying to breathe. They can't breathe because they're suffocating under the weight of their own body. They're hanging on the cross for hours, some people even for days. And, yeah, it happened to people like that. People were faint. They couldn't breathe. They could barely speak. But what does the Bible say how Jesus died? Mark 15, verse 34, verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in verse 37, it says he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. This is with no sustenance, with no sleep, being spit upon, being smitten, scourged, having that crown of thorns set into his skull, smote him on the head with the reed. He shouldered that cross all the way up that hill, had the spikes set into his hands, and he still cried out with a loud voice. Luke 23, 46, that he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and in John 19, he said, it is finished. That's my Savior. That's not the Savior that I find when I go to those places. They, they call them churches, but that's not what I find. I find something completely different in this word of God. I see a strong, suffering Savior. And you know what? It should make you believe because... It, this is what the centurion, look at verse 39 there. What made the centurion believe? And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. He's seen 
many people dying on that cross. He's seen people weary, weak, faint. But he saw a man up there who was strong, who cried out with a loud voice. See that Savior up there. See that man who died like a man. He didn't die weak and weary. He didn't die wimpy. He died as a man up there. And the centurion looked up there and said, that man was the Son of God. Truly, that was the Son of God. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. If you're not saved, see that strong suffering Savior. He could save you from your sins. And brother or sister, see that that strong suffering Savior can help you with your sorrows today. Will you not consider what Jesus did for you? He reaches out those nail-pierced hands. Will you reach back today?